welcome to Crawl Space. Here in this bonus episode that we recorded on Thursday night on Get Vocal, we spoke to Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast. In the first part, we cover the recent rampage in Jordan's neck of the woods in Nova Scotia. And there was someone dressed in a police officer's uniform driving a replica police cruiser around and killing people. And so we discussed that with Jordan. He's done some coverage of that case on his podcast, the Nighttime Podcast. Make sure to check that out. And in the second half, we talk about the disappearance of Emma Filipoff. Emma was 26 when she went missing from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada on November 28th, 2012. And Jordan has also done some extensive coverage of that case on his podcast. Okay, everybody, we'll be back this week with a regular episode. I hope you enjoy this bonus. Thank you very much. I'm in Nova Scotia, so people who follow crime, I think what no matter where you are in the world right now, you probably heard about what happened in Nova Scotia. We had um, just, uh, it's hard to tell time because of the pandemic. I don't know how long it's been, but it, about a month ago, we had Canada's uh, worst act of mass murder happened in a small town outside of, I live in Halifax, which is like the capital city of Nova Scotia, a small town of a thousand outside of the city that was... Um, a mass murder event that killed 22 people and then the gunman died as well. Um, it is now Canada's worst act of mass murder. So that's kind of, if you're talking crime in Nova Scotia, that's that's the story right now. You guys heard about this, I'm assuming. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. terrible. It's yeah. it's a heavy one. It, it's, a, I can't even um, understate how much of an impact it had on the province. It's like it's all people are talking about, obviously. And with this many people involved, it's everybody has a connection to somebody involved in this in some way. So it's a real sensitive story in Nova Scotia. But long story short, what happened for people who don't know the story is this 51-year-old man who's a well-known denturist, makes dentures. He's a wealthy guy, millionaire. And he had, like, right downtown, not Halifax, but Dartmouth, which is the neighboring city. Right downtown, he had a denture clinic. It was this big building with, like, a big smile and with, you know, dentures, like this big thing on the side of the building. Anyway, but everyone kind of in this area knows this business because of the big smile that's on the side of the building. But anyway, he um, what he ended up doing was it started with a domestic assault against his wife his common law not wife his common law partner he like beat her up and handcuffed her apparently she fled the house survived um and it just he from there just went on a spree dressed as a police officer he had uh been known to collect police memorabilia so he had a police uniform on for some reason and he also was buying and refurbishing old police cars from like auctions and stuff so in his garage, he had, I think he had three police cars, but one in particular that he even had all the decals made. So it looked exactly like a police car. It had the lights on the top. He even had this thing added to the front that would allow him to ram other cars and not damage his car. But what he ended up doing was dressed as a cop, driving a cop car that you, or a car that you would never know the difference between it and a legitimate cop car. He just drove from 
place to place killing people, including traffic stops. Like he pulled people over, two people he pulled over and went over, just walked up to them and shot them. And it seemed like they don't really know exactly who, why he targeted the people he targeted, but he was traveling kind of around that part of the province from house to house and knocking on doors or lighting homes on fire. He had brought a bunch of gas with him. Apparently, uh, shortly before the attacks, he bought like $800 worth of gas. So some people he'd murder with firearms. Some he was just lighting their houses on fire, probably while they slept. Eventually, he killed a cop. He drove his car, his police car, head on into a cop car, uh, another like an actual cop car, and... This is on a major highway, and he got out of his car and walked over to the real police car and shot the police officer involved. And somebody driving by, like, pulled over thinking that they were going to maybe help two police officers who had an accident, and he killed them and took their car. Eventually, he ended up at a gas station. One of the victims, somebody he, the last person he murdered, he took their car as well, so he's kind of changing cars at the end. Turned out the car had no gas in it. He had to stop at a gas station and an off-duty police officer recognized him and shot him and killed him. And that's kind of how the whole thing ended. But it's a it's a it's just an absolutely insane story and so tragic. And everybody who died was just... What's really hard is a lot of people, or some people had a connection with him. They either lived near him or maybe knew him in some way. But it seems like... Along the way, it was a lot of people were trying to help the people he was killing, and they were getting killed. So he'd light a house on fire. Someone would come to a neighbor would come to help and get shot to death. You know that sort of thing. Or the person who pulled over on the side of the road to try to help got killed. And yeah, it's really, really nuts. Is there anything um, that's coming out about his past? Any anything that people are saying? He was uh, yeah. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's uh, actually my latest. Two, the two most recent part, uh, episodes of my podcast I'm calling um, There Were Red Flags and they basically go through everything that surfaced from his history that make you say like this guy's always been volatile he takes kind of the idea of a bad drunk and brings it to the most epic scale like uh, a lot of the things from his history involve violent outbursts after drinking including um, he brought his parents to Cuba to a resort 15 years ago or something and completely unprovoked attacked his father beat him unconscious and a resort employee had to intervene um, one day at his denture clinic a 15 year old boy was standing waiting for a bus at a bus stop right outside the denture clinic just so happens that there's a bus stop there the denturist thought he was a little too close to his building and started just went outside drunk attacking him and got arrested and charged for that and was prohibited from carrying firearms for a while because of that. Is he a, uh, is he a native from the area? Yeah, well, he's from New Brunswick, which is the neighboring province, but he's yeah. lived in Nova Scotia for, for, I feel like, 20 years or something. But he's, what's, another thing that's really heavy is a, a lot of stories have surfaced about domestic violence, him having, um, complete control in an abusive relationship with uh, with the woman who would eventually survive his attack but stories came out from neighbors who witnessed uh, really extreme abuse against her and it's it has like this story has so many awful little stories within it it's just it's like hell 
I, well, we're obviously not up there, so we don't get the news as uh, frequently or as, <clears throat> you know, as, uh, yeah, as frequently as you do. Uh, this doesn't seem like something that happens there a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. Canada's not known, no insult to us, but kind of, Canada's not known to be like the United States where they have shootings and acts of violence like that so often. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was? What do you think it was that pushed this guy over? I mean, do you think that he was just that one that 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 one anomaly? It's hard to say. Like what what's for sure is that he had an interest in firearms mm-hmm. uh and they were illegal firearms is what what we know about them. He had a big problem with authority it would seem, including a problem with police for whatever reason. He seemed to have um Ext- uh, extreme violence um, in much of the issues in his past. So to me, it seems like it's just an, uh, he was just a ticking time bomb waiting for the right thing to happen. But it also what's, what's come out is that he's apparently was paranoid and all anxious about the coronavirus. So maybe like, I'm thinking it was just almost like the perfect storm of like a ticking time bomb waiting to go off and, things lined up in such a way and this is what came of it and the fact that he had a police vehicle and a police uniform that allowed it to go from you know a murder suicide or something into this horrible thing because it wasn't until far into it that people were able to realize that it was a cop doing this stuff they only what they the way they were tracking his car is you know how like on the side of a police car there'll be um like numbers that indicate the car or whatever what ended up happening was the next morning, like the, the attack started up, I think like 11 o'clock at night. His common law partner ran into the woods handcuffed to hide from him. She didn't come out until the next morning. And when she came out, she went to a neighbor's house and called 911. And she, it was her that told them that he was dressed as a cop and driving a cop car. And she had a picture of the cop car that he had refurbished so they could see the number on the side of it, the serial number or whatever. And that's how they were able to identify what cars were legit and what one was maybe him. But he was going around all night, you know, doing stuff unchecked. They didn't realize it was a police car. And it's become a big debate when the police found out that this was happening versus when they informed the public that someone dressed as a police officer was killing people. Uh, That's become a big thing because they didn't send out you know how like you can get that update where your phone buzzes and it'll be like, you know, there's a red alert, there's a missing person or something like that, missing child. Uh, that didn't happen. And the the government or the police have been criticized rightfully so pretty, pretty heavily for that because I believe it costs lives by not letting people know about this. How long did it go on for? Yeah, It went on for 13 hours. Yeah, so it, it started one it started at like 11-ish at night. And it ended at like, you know, one o'clock the next morning, the, the next afternoon. I remember when I was actually leaving um, the grocery store and I was had the updates on my phone, like, you know, reports of an active shooter. And there was an, a tweet that went out from the police saying, you know, avoid this area. And it was far from where I was. Uh, and I was in the grocery store and then I got started getting messages um from home saying like are you following what's going on you need to get home and then i looked at the my twitter and i saw the police had tweeted like you know this person's driving a cop car they're wanted for murder and they were coming basically like on the highway towards right where i was i was like oh shit so i went home and by the time i got home i heard the news that they got him and 
it ended. But yeah, it's it's awful. It's a nightmare. You can see um, you can see a lot of photo. Like there's a lot of for people who don't know the story. There's a lot written and published about it in in on the Canadian press. So there's there's a lot you can read. It's it's really heavy and it's the story's still just coming out. The press is fighting tooth and nail with the police to get information released as to what actually happened and it's um it's a slow burn so the information's slowly coming out and just gets worse and worse as it does was this something that he was planning because he was getting uh the cop car sort of prepped um i mean how did he how did he get this by his common law wife like you just said that he had yeah. a hobby taking cars and refurbishing them to you know restoring them to cop you know police car status yeah i mean he well, must have been planning this that's kind of what I think, but he's a he's he has for one he has police officers in his family. I think his uncle was RCMP, and maybe a cousin as well. His high school year. So this is a fifty-one-year-old man who did this. His high school yearbook has recently come out, uh, like a photo of the little write-up, and it even said in there like he has one day will be a police officer. So he's always had an interest in police, and he collected the memorabilia, like he had different uniforms and all that sort of stuff but when for whatever reason he was buying the scrapped decommissioned police cars that would have all the equipment removed from them so it was just an old whatever model of Ford Taurus or something he was buying them and he had three or four of them that he was uh, having restored but one in particular uh, the one he used for the crime he had the lights on it he had decals made so it was exactly a replica of a police a police vehicle in fact better equipped than police vehicles than the average police vehicle because he had this big kind of thing added to the front that would be used for like ramming vehicles i guess but it's um he didn't keep any secret about having these vehicles he was showing like people who were patients of his at the dent- denture clinic gave stories to the press of him showing them like photos on his phone and just being look what look what I do. I'm you know I'm into cop cars, and he's told some people he was going to take them to like car shows, and everybody kind of had a different story from him as far as why he had them. But he's had them for some time. But there's a question about whether or not it was premeditated. I think one thing that's really telling is the fact that he bought eight hundred dollars of gas before he went and burnt a few people's homes with it. And set fire to cars. He was burning cars along his rampage as well. So I think that kind of speaks to to maybe premeditation. Yeah, and it's like I've seen cop cars with that sort of thing on the front, like a just a big metal kind of, not like a regular grill, but like a big metal thing on the front. I've seen cop cars with it. But if you were going to restore a cop car to be like, oh, I got this cool cop car and I love police, you wouldn't get like a feature like that. To me, that. That's a bit telling. The fact that he bought the gas is telling. But at the same time, he had a bunch of motorcycles as well. So maybe he'd have a reason to have a bunch of gas. But I don't know. I Like, I'll have gas. Does he have a helicopter? Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of money. So it's... I I would be really surprised if more evidence doesn't come out that shows that it was a, a premeditated incident in some way. To me, it, it kind of has maybe some similarities to that Las Vegas gunman thing. Uh-huh. It, I, I, it just it keeps reminding me of that where it's just this older guy just did something horrific and unimaginably cruel, right? And and seemingly uh, sudden, seemingly random. Yeah. And then you find out all these details about him, and you're like, oh, okay. Why didn't anyone see the 
the the signs? Why didn't anyone see the red flags here? Because this person's been exhibiting them for a long time. First of all, I don't want my I don't want my dentist talking to me about anything personal. So that's a giant red flag. What is he doing? Like, are you are you in the dentist chair and you're just you just want to get out of there? And he's like, hey, look what I do in my spare time. No, we're not at a bar. We're not hanging out. Yeah. Just yeah, do weird. your work and get me out of here. Personally, I have a really cool dentist, and he he's always plays Zeppelin, and he knows I like Zeppelin. So when we're doing when I'm in the dentist chair, he has like this really nice stereo in his dentist well, office. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> we'll he'll play Zeppelin and do his thing, and I don't mind going to him. But uh, he's never shown me anything that's like I, I think the idea of a of a cop car, someone redoing that to me that strikes me as weird. But if you think of how sinister it is to use the cop car and the symbol of police in that way. Like there, when in, during this attack, like it's, it seems like some people were targeted cause they had a connection to him in one way or another. So maybe he was driving to people he knew that he had a beef with his house and, and killing them. But some people that he pulled over, you know, pretending they were speeding or something and just going over and killing them. These were people he had no connection to whatsoever one person was a, a, a this older lady was just out for a walk on the side of the highway in this super rural area. Apparently, she made this walk every day. They it seems like he didn't even stop. He just slowed down alongside her and shot her out of the window and killed her. Um, so it's a completely random murders. So it's it's nuts. Yeah, and one thing, you know what's interesting, my my next episode. So I did the first I did one episode about this that's I just it's called like the timeline and it just goes to the timeline of all the murders and what happened. The second one, the second part is covering kind of the red flags from this guy's past, but the third part that I'm releasing over this weekend looks at um the the domestic violence in this guy's history and some of the stories that came out related to that. But what's really kind of telling if you look at Canadian mass murder, so that we say that this is now Canada's worst mass murder with 22 victims. Right behind this, what used to be Canada's worst act of mass murder was this school shooting at a woman's university in Quebec called the Polytechnic Massacre. And it was basically one guy who was extremely misogynistic, went into the school and specifically targeted women who were pursuing engineering as a field. And he, he, he killed 14 women and injured 14 more. And that was like specifically a misogynistic attack. Before the, the one below that is 11 murders was the incel van attack in Toronto where an incel guy rented a rider like moving van and just drove it down the sidewalk of a busy street in Toronto and killed, I think it was 11 people. That was Canada's third worst act of mass murder. And it, again, it was incel, so it's you know misogynistic, uh, gender-based violence. And then the fourth was a guy in Vernon, B.C., who um, murdered his estranged wife and her family. Uh, I think it was I don't know if it was how many people exactly died in that, but if you look at Canada's worst mass murder, all four of them were crimes against women gender-based violence, domestic violence, like that's all kind of boiled in it. And it's, it's really telling. My third episode is an interview with a journalist from Global News who discusses the connection between 
domestic violence and gender-based violence with mass murder. And it was it really blew my mind hearing her give some stats and give some background on some of the things this guy did to his wife or was said to have done to his common law partner, not his wife. When were the when was the uh, I know the um that the incel one was in the past um was recent, you know, in the past yeah, year like or so. Two or three years ago, yeah. Yeah. Were all of those that you just mentioned in the same like maybe five or six or seven year period? Maybe in the last like the, the polytechnic school shooting I think was in the nineties, like twenty years ago or something. Okay. But all these are the four worst mass murders in modern Canadian history. So say like the last hundred years, the oldest one would have been the school shooting at Polytechnic, which I don't know exactly the date, but I'm thinking mid to late nineties. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's heavy and it's, but like interesting, that's an interesting uh, connection though, that Mm -hmm. you're making the association between that and um, uh, the misogynistic nature of the perpetrators. That's um, fascinating that there is that thread. It's, it's, weird that it's the t- that's the four biggest and then if you look at the ones before below that they're almost all drugs and organized crime related if you look at the american stats it's it's a bit different but it's um i i just thought it was really telling hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Emma Filipoff is, uh, she disappeared from Victoria, B.C. in 2012. And her story is really, really sad and in tragic and full of kind of coincidence and mystery it's uh so we're here with tim and lance it, it i see some connections between the way her story is told emma's story is told and the way maura murray's story is told but the for people who don't know the story with emma she moved away from she lived she grew up in ontario she moved away and she was living in bc um I don't know how many hours away from home that would be, but it's a good ways away. Not the kind of place you'd drive back and forth. So she was on the other side of the country in a different city, basically. But um, while she was there, initially she was living with an old high school friend from back home. She moved out of there, kind of bounced around from place to place. And slowly she became living in in a a women's shelter. Um, So bordering on homeless. Emma's a, a... a real like artistic creative person who kind of lived in an offbeat life in a lot of ways. So it wasn't unusual for her to be living kind of in this bordering on a homeless type life. But anyway, what ended up happening was leading up to her disappearance, she made a series of phone calls to her mom back home saying, you know, mom, you know, things aren't working out. I need to come home. Can you buy me a plane ticket? Her mom's like, yeah, sure. Emma, no problem. The next morning, Emma would call back like, Mom, cancel the ticket. I'm going to work this out. It's fine. And her mom would say, okay. Later that day, call back, bawling and crying like, I can't do it myself. you got to come here and help me come home. The mom would agree to it. And anyway, it went back and forth. And then finally, like, her mom didn't know she was living in a women's shelter, but she saw this name on the phone like Sandy Merriman. She assumed that was Emma's friend or something. And she dialed the number back to like, 
call Emma and check in on her. And that's when they answered, like, Sandy Merriman Women's Shelter. And Emma's mom then realized things were really bad. And she decided, you know, I'm not going to tell Emma I'm going. I'm just going to show up there and make sure my daughter's okay. Um, coincidentally, Emma's mom arrived an hour or two hours after Emma was last seen. The events leading to her disappearance were... Uh, someone who knew Emma ran into her downtown Victoria. She didn't have her shoes on. She was disoriented and kind of talking nonsense. The friend talked to her for a few minutes and eventually called the police and said, you know, this uh, young woman I know is disor- is you know in distress. The police came and checked on her and they talked to her for about an hour or so, uh, determined that she wasn't, you know, a risk to herself or others. And they left her in, on the side of the street. November, no shoes, disoriented, um, and that was the last time she was ever seen. So it's it's a complete mystery where she went. There's been a whole bunch of unconfirmed sightings from that point on of where she of people who thought they saw her, but nothing confirmed. Last last time anyone saw her was those police uh, talking to her. So it's a it's a really dark, they're a really tragic story. And Emma, like what comes out in the story when you like if you listen to my series, it's it's uh, a lot of interviews with like friends and family of, of Emma's. And so the mystery and the story of her disappearance is really fascinating, but just as fascinating is the story of Emma and her unique personality and the cool little things she did throughout her life. So it's, there's a lot of layers to the story. CBC, which is like our national news network, they did a really good documentary about her called finding Emma that is available on YouTube that does a great job of telling her story in like a 40 minute version but if you want the eight hour version i have that on my podcast what do you uh where are you at now with that are you still communicating with the family and, and friends and are, do they give you any um updates or anything there well sadly there hasn't been updates uh the the biggest update is that there's talk of um a documentary being filmed i heard a release that they were planning to have something out for um i think fall of this year but I haven't heard anything since. In this documentary, the way what I understand, I'm not involved in it, but I believe it's um, people close to the family. It's not like a production company or something. I think it's people close to the family doing it. So I don't know what what's going to come of it. But it's uh, that sounds interesting. Uh, I'll be really curious to hear if if any news comes. But sadly, they're just like Morris' case. You know, you look at the last five years. There's all these kind of tips and clues and leads that seem really promising and yeah that's in the end nothing happens so i don't think we're much closer to finding emma or mora as we were you know uh the day or two after they were last seen it's really crazy tim and i were talking about this earlier on today regarding another project but what comes with doing these shows and you know your relationship with emma's family her disappearance is is having an effect on you, is having an impact on you. And I'm sure you get stressed out about someone that, like, why, you know what I mean? Like, you never met her. You've never met her. You know, you, you wouldn't have, you never would have met her family if you didn't get into this. It's just interesting to me that that you're able to, and, and even like the other people in the true crime, like Morph and John Lorden, as much as he's a big jerk. Um, you know, real he, asshole. Yeah. Real asshole. Real, real real know-it-all <laughs> but there's there comes an an uh an element of responsibility and you have to take that on it's just about 
being empathetic and like in Emma's case, what happened, my experience with that was I watched that CBC documentary and I thought um, as I watched it, I'm thinking like this Emma is so much like so many of my friends. And, you know, if we were in the same city, I'm sure Emma and I would have connected in some way. And then I watched her mom talk about searching for her. And I'm like, that reminds me so much of all my friends' moms. And I just felt, you know, just immediately it just pulls at your heartstrings. That, that's what happens to me. And it's, and that's Emma's story. But other stories I'll meet, like there's, um, I recently covered a story, the disappearance of Holly Ellsworth Clark. Um, I did an episode about Holly. She's a missing person. She's only been missing several months at this point. I don't even think it's been a year yet. But that's another one where I, I knew the story and I felt she was a musician who disappeared. Uh, just like Emma, a very similar kind of events leading up to her disappearance, including a phone call to her parents asking for help getting home, which is really weird. But um, when I learned of Holly's story, I was like, man, like that seems so much like the type of people I run with and that kind of made me feel a bit of a connection then I offered to do an episode and I got to meet her dad and talk to him I'm like and as I'm doing it I'm like this guy reminds me exactly like my dad this is how my dad would react and that just makes you feel like I gotta help you know in, in any way I can but it's uh I'm sure you've, you you talk a lot to a lot of families of missing persons and or people who are you know victims of unsolved crimes or whatnot it's out of just being like a human with a big heart and being empathetic, it's you just feel like you need to help in some way. Sadly, the best I can do is make an episode of my podcast about it and tell my friends. But yeah, well, I mean, you're also you're also getting um, the word out there. You have a platform, and you're using that platform to raise the awareness of these uh, cold cases and these missing people. It's time that that uh, this sort of industry just grabs the proverbial bull by the horns of that and says, you know, there's going to be mistakes that you make along the way. You're probably not going to please everybody. You're going to piss off some people. But overall, you will end up, in spite of everything, you're going to crash through something and someone's going to, to slip up. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to read an article and they'll they'll get nervous or they'll say, I know that guy. Or, I know that person who, who did this. You know, they might have said something to me. Yeah, I think it's a bit of joke. Like, a, there's no hiding the fact that what we do as like kind of like storyteller podcasters there's a big part of that entertainment so you make an you find an enter, a story that's interesting and you tell it in an entertaining way but you need to kind of balance that with ad, advocacy and so i i try to find an interesting story that's going to grab people and then in telling that story i try to get whatever good i can out of it so maybe that good is you know having the story be effective enough and entertaining enough that all these people find out about it and they get the facts, they see her photo, they learn about where to call if they have any information and they learn, you know, enough that I'm, I almost see it as like I tell them an interesting story and I just push them towards where they can help if they decide to. So that's kind of how I sleep at night.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.